Plugged In podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Hi, I'm your host, Paige Lambermont, a policy associate here at the Institute for Energy Research. With me today is Thomas Iden, founder and CEO of Atomic Alchemy, a nuclear medicine company. Thanks for coming to talk to me today, Thomas. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, do you want to give our listeners an idea of your background, what your company does, kind of what brought you to this place? Sure. Um, I sort of started my career in the nuclear field at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. or received my master's degree there, and while doing so was a researcher, a research assistant, and I did a lot of work on what is now called accident-tolerant fuels, so like the Westinghouse Encore fuel. Um, I did proton beam irradiation studies using protons as sort of analogous to neutrons for material damage. You know, basically punish this material in a radioactive environment, see how it changes, see what happens to it. And uh, yeah, that sort of, uh, you know, I got to pay my way through school that way and obtain my degree, then got a job at Idaho National Laboratory where I did neutronics modeling for the advanced test reactor. Basically my job there was to go, okay, this is our reactor core. We have a number of customers who want to put things in that reactor to nuke them, so to speak. Do a lot of uh, neutron damage to see how do these materials change over time in a reactor environment. And then um, my job specifically was, okay, these customers have these things. They want to put them in the reactor core. Now I have to model that and ensure that if we run a reactor cycle for X number of days to facilitate these experiments, are we meeting all of our safety margins? And so I would simulate the that, that entire run of the reactor and then uh, analyze and report on some of our key reactor parameters. And then if everything was within a particular sandbox that we could operate in, then we would operate. And then so I got to, it was kind of cool because I got to kind of design, I basically picked where does the nuclear fuel go? Where do we put certain reactor hardware to shape our neutron profile in that reactor and so in a sense I did get to design reactor cores that actually ran wow, and awesome. so my uh, analogy to that is like if you're a propulsion engineer at SpaceX uh, you design this new rocket engine and you get to see it launch into space that's very rewarding so I got to actually design a reactor core and watch it operate which a lot of neutronics analysts they don't get to do fun stuff like that. Uh, they get to design, like, quote, a new reactor on paper, and then people talk about it, and that's kind of the extent. So it's a, it's a less academic exercise. It's production engineering. It's really rewarding. Wow, that's awesome. And so then how did you uh, kind of come to this idea of doing um, nuclear medicine and making a company that does that? Sure. Well, there's a, a little-known problem. It's actually very fascinating how many people don't know this is a huge problem and that is there is a very short supply or a very tenuous supply chain for radioactive materials specifically used for nuclear medicine. Uh, there are approximately six big producers around the world uh, of these nuclear materials. They're research reactors run by their respective governments. Uh, most are in Europe. There's one in Australia, one in South Africa. and Basically, if any two of these reactors are done at one time for maintenance, you have a legitimate shortage, like procedures can't be done shortage using these materials. And so this has been a problem over the last 
I'd say two decades, maybe even longer, because over time, a lot of these old research reactors, they're aging as they shut down. They're not necessarily being replaced. Some countries do. Some countries replace the reactors with another reactor that's for a different type of scientific experimentation. And really, all of these um, government entities are sort of making the stuff on the side because there is no private producer of these radioactive materials. And so they do it at a loss because they're very complex scientific machine, can't make a profit by nature of how expensive it is to operate it. And the fact that the governments are operating it and they're the stalwarts of efficiency. <laughs> Thank you for getting the sarcasm. But, um, but because they don't make it at a profit, it's, it's just a par it's called a parasitic activity. They just do it on the side as they run these experiments. And so if one shuts down for maintenance and they're fixing some stuff because it's aging, all these reactors are 40, 45 years or older, um, and then another one unexpectedly shuts down for maintenance, then there's, the, uh, there's a legitimate huge disruption that you just don't have access to the materials. And I've always been interested in this problem because as somebody who really appreciates the uh, private enterprise, um, I'm like, well, this is a niche that clearly needs to be filled, and it needs to be filled in a way that on all levels of the supply chain are profitable, whereas some of the, in the current paradigm, all of the parts of the supply chain not controlled by private enterprise are not profitable. And so we need to fill this niche and fix this problem. Wow. So it seems like the normal rules of supply and demand are just absolutely not in play here. It's kind of a mess. Wow. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because a lot of the reports that these government bodies put out, they noticed there's this trend that if there's more supply, the demand rises and it was like the shocking thing to them and but the problem is is that the because the supply chain is so convoluted you've got the reactor over here and then you have to physically truck the stuff over to the processing facility and then ship it over to where it gets packaged into its final medical form none of it's integrated and that introduces a ton of losses as well uh, so because the stuff is radioactive it decays you can't stockpile it. You can't sit there. And so you lose a lot in transit. And so on top of that, there's just so many other inefficiencies in the supply chain because of this weird dynamic that the government owns some of the infrastructure and regulates the rest. But then, you know, but other people try to pick up slack in part of the supply chain. And it's, yeah, it's a weird dynamic. Right. So your private company would introduce sort of, um, a uh, in fully integrated supply chain into this place that's currently very kind of bureaucratic and disorganized? Is that? Yeah. So we intend to, my company intends to build a reactor facility for a number of reactors that will not only do the, irradiate the material to create the radioactive material, but the processing facility is attached. And so it introduces a lot of efficiencies in terms of just movement of stuff because when you take something out of the reactor, it's very radioactive, it's very hot, so to speak, and it requires a lot of shielding and basically very large, heavy shielding casks to move that material around. So one of my potential customers has a processing facility in Europe, and it's located next door to the government reactor that they get their radioactive material from. But even being across the street, relatively speaking, 
when you get the material out of the reactor, it has to go into these that, those large right. concrete steel casks onto a truck, driven over, and then unloaded, which takes an incredible amount of manpower. I mean, these casks alone are one to two million euros a pop just for a container. Um, but you've got heavy cranes, all of the safety um, procedures that go along with having a bunch of people monitor and move heavy things. It's just very expensive and time consuming. And so one of the innovations for our facility is simply having them all in one spot so that we can take it out of the reactor, move it down through our shielded canal of water, like most things in research facilities are moved straight into the processing facility. And um, in basically add in some efficiencies in that less of our material decays off trying to do all of that stuff and a lot of the money saved without having to have all this capital infrastructure to do those kind of things. And so a lot of that is just kind of the profit motive that a private company has that causes it to be efficient in a way that a lot of government entities just don't tend to be. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. The government's right now that are making this stuff, as I mentioned, do it at a loss. It's a parasitic activity. And it's funny because I'll, I forgot to mention this, but the United States consumes 50% of the world's nuclear medicine each year. And that radioactive feedstock that I want to make, well, the United States makes approximately 0% of it. And so here's the fun thing. It's what's incentivizing the government of South Africa to perform an activity at their expense for our market. What's their what's what what's in it for them? They're subsidizing our healthcare, and so really, uh, according to the literature out there, the term being used is social contract. Uh, they all do it out of some sort of social contract, but they also note that well, as private entities come into play, well, all of these entities are now. Uh, all these government entities are now questioning their social contract because it's a lot of money if you can't do it profitably. So it's an interesting market opportunity because there, I, because there clearly is this need, and it's a growing need with a growing and aging population for these materials, but also because, well, all of the people that currently make it probably don't want to because it costs them money, their taxpayer money. Um, that's so interesting. Could you uh, explain just a little bit more, like, which sorts of procedures that these isotopes are used for? Uh, I think a lot of people aren't super familiar with the fact that maybe even nuclear isotopes are involved in medicine, and don't, or at least don't know which things that they're pretty familiar with in general are actually that. So if you could explain that. Yeah. Um, there's a very neat subsection of medicine, pharmaceuticals called radiopharmaceuticals, or nuclear uh, pharmaceuticals. And they are used for primarily two main things. Right now, the big thing is diagnostic imaging. So it's called uh, one of them is called SPECT, single photon emission tomography. And that is you have a material that gives off some sort of gamma radiation. And it's similar to an x-ray. If you're familiar with how an x-ray works, you've got a radiation source. Radiation passes through your body. And there's a detector to capture that radiation. And then based on how your body attenuates or absorbs that material, you make an image. And so instead of doing it that way, instead of using your body as kind of the, the shield for the radiation, using like SPECT or PET, which is positron emission tomography, our facility won't make those types of materials, but uh, it's all for uh, diagnostic imaging, is you actually ingest or inject the radioactive material into you, 
and you become the radioactive source. And that radiation does the same thing, though. It, it interacts with your tissues in a particular way. Certain tissues like bone uh, or fat will move, uh, will interact with that radiation in a different way. It gets captured by a detector, and you make an image. And so based on the type of radiation and the energy of that radiation, you get different types of pictures. So that's why something that gives off a gamma ray will give you a different picture than, say, an X-ray. So depending on what you want to look for and what you're imaging, it's another way of taking pictures. It's kind of like, I think, the sort of the if you've ever heard of the bad movie description where yeah. like Alice in Wonderland, a young girl gets lost and murders a bunch of people along the way. It's kind of <laughs> like the bad description of this is turning a person into a light bulb. Oh, wow. <laughs> because that, ma that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, gamma rays are photons. And uh, basically, if they're in you and you're emitting light, you're a light bulb. But the second uh, use that is gaining popularity as clinical trials are concluded is what's called targeted alpha therapy, so for uh, cancer treatment. And what you can do is attach some of this radioactive material to um, an, either an antibody or some sort of like sugar that is preferentially taken up by the cancer. And it's you can almost say it's targeted chemotherapy, except instead of chemo, it's radio. And so the cancer will preferentially take up this um, the the binder or it will the the antibody or so will attach to the cancer and then that radioactive material is right next to the cell. It'll decay, release has some heavy hitting alpha radiation, which smashes through cell walls and will kill the cancer. And what's really awesome about targeted alpha therapy is like I said, it's targeted. So instead of chemotherapy, which is like a war of attrition, you just let all the uh, poison just indiscriminately kill everything and you just hope you kill more cancer than you. Um, you've got this very targeted thing that attaches to that cancer and only does damage around that cancer area. So you still get a little bit of collateral damage, but far less than chemotherapy. And so that's gaining a lot of attention um, in the therapeutics world. Uh, as some, as, but the problem is, is it's hard to get through some of these clinical trials when the mater the radioactive material that goes into your uh, medicine is co sometimes colloquially called one of the rarest uh, materials on earth because it only comes from like one accelerator at one national lab somewhere in the world. So my company aims to make a lot of these materials much more accessible because well, we want these treatments to come to light. So. Wow, that's, that's incredible. That sounds like such a massive improvement on the currently used technology. That's really cool. So um, can you also explain sort of what makes the reactors that you'll be using different from the com normal commercial reactors people usually think of, like uh, boiling water reactors and pressurized water reactors? Like, what's the difference here? Yeah, so for those types of reactors that produce electricity, um, to really be an efficient power producer, you want to have as much energy made in one spot as possible. And so these reactors are typically anywhere between one and 3,000 megawatts of thermal power. And then you're seeing some of these small modular reactors that will be in the hundreds of megawatts, but we're talking hundreds and thousands of megawatts. Our reactors will be 
almost like children's toys in comparison. They're on the order of tens of megawatts. And so itty bitty little guys, but for what we're using them for, they're actually quite powerful. Our reactors are more aptly classified in the research reactor range, which is anywhere from 0.1 megawatt to typically, I think the most powerful research reactor in the United States right now, or I should say university is 10 megawatts. Um, things like advanced test reactor in Heifer at Oak Ridge and Idaho National Lab, uh, they're in like the hundreds of megawatts. But in terms of like, say university research size, we're actually closer to a university research reactor scale of power. Yeah, uh, so two more questions on that then. What's the like the physical size? Like picture for someone how big one reactor is versus the other in terms of like what it looks like. I understand what you're talking about in terms of like power production yeah. or that, but like physical size, what's it like? If you could characterize that. Sure. So a lot of the dimensions and details of our reactor aren't publicly available yet. But in terms of the actual reactor core itself, I can say that, and I love using this term, it's huggable. Whereas you could <laughs> not put your arms all the way around it, but you could give it a good bear hug in terms of it's like the actual core size. Of course, the pictures that you'll typically see would be like the biological shielding, the concrete right. shield around it. That's a little bit bigger, but, um, but comparing to a power reactor, uh, say like a power reactor core, those fuel elements are... 12 feet high or maybe a little bit more um, and uh, those cores are hundreds of fuel elements and so you definitely could maybe hug a few of them but it's much bigger in comparison uh, so ours in is just a tiny fraction of the size yeah. so your reactors are a room not a building correct okay yeah um, and then what point like what point in the development pipeline are you at how far along yeah, we're currently in the like pre-application phase, so we are putting together our construction license application. Um, next, next spring is our target for submitting that, and then it goes to the NRC for review, and then in some time later they will approve us for construction, and we will grab our shovels and start digging holes. So um, we're. So we're just basically going, putting together all of our engineering analysis to show, hey, this is what we, on a, on a conceptual-ish level for the construction application, you don't have to have like final, everything finalized. It's, hey, we intend to do this and here's how we are showing you that it's going to be safe. So we are doing a number of analyses to show like, hey, if an accident happens and the stuff magically breaks up in a way that's not really possible, but we assume that it does and escapes that it won't go above a certain uh, threshold and affect the public in a certain way. And then when we show that that's not true, because that is an incredible accident that could not possibly happen, anything less than that is covered by this umbrella of all of this crazy thing can't happen, then anything less dangerous than that won't exceed these limits for exposure and other things like, hey, we've got a particular coolant rate through our fuel. Is that enough to cool our fuel? And so we just do all that analysis, put it together in this little package and be like, hey, we intend to do this and here's why it's awesome. And then 
So they then review that. So um, the main agency you interact with for um, kind of the regulatory development is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission? At this point, yes. Okay. Um, for all this reactor stuff, it's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Later on in the game, when we're ready to become operational, then we'll have a, f a bit more interaction with the FDA because most of some of our stuff, depending on its actual end use, is regulated by, by them. So that makes sense. And so, uh, in terms that's in terms of regulation, and so then on the insurance side. How does insurance for reactors of this type work? Do you fall under the Price-Anderson Act? How are those insured? Yeah, so as far as I can tell, we are, in, we are quote, covered by Price-Anderson Act, but because our reactor is so much smaller than a lot of these large power reactors, um, it's a much lesser component to what we're doing than, okay. say, a power reactor. Uh, being in the tens of megawatts versus thousands, the our, the consequence of our of us having an accident are infinitesimally smaller. Um, I think a good, uh, not necessarily uh, agreeing with how it's currently done, but right now power reactors have, say, a various levels of um, uh, vacuum like. Uh, emergency planning zones so if something happens at a certain radius you evacuate a certain uh, radius away from the plant x and y happens our emergency planning zone be based on our size and consequence of accidents is probably the building that they're in so it's it's trivial in comparison to say something happening at a power reactor right okay so um kind of along that same line um, your reactors are passively safe, right? Uh, could you kind of explain what a passively safe reactor is, how that works? Sure. So a passively safe reactor is one that if something happens that you weren't expecting or don't want to happen, that if you didn't touch the controls or you shut it down and walked away, it would do its thing and then just basically keep shutting itself down and basically not have a meltdown. And so an example of this would be, uh, this is like one for the Googles, uh, it's called EBR2, the uh, Experimental Breeder Reactor 2. And the, the great irony is that this reactor, they did a test to show that it was passively safe, that in fact this reactor technology couldn't melt down, and it was one that did hundreds and hundreds of megawatts, so it was a power, it was it's meant to be a power reactor. Um, they did this test within a week of Chernobyl occurring and showed that, or I think it was within a week, very short time frame before Chernobyl, and uh, showed that, hey, we turned off the coolant, the reactor temperature kept going up, but then the reaction died, and it went down in power, and nothing was damaged. And so there are certain, depending on how it's designed, what the materials are, you can make them passively safe. And ours just happens to be a low enough power that if something were to happen, um, we don't ha we don't suffer the consequences of say a, a thousand three thousand megawatt power reactor that shut down with no coolant. Ours is the natural convection of the water will take care of that decay heat because we are such a low power. Okay, awesome. And so, in terms of uh, actual reactor construction, are you is your company building reactors yourselves? Are you contracting with an outside company to do it? How does the construction process work? Sure. I think we're taking a, going to take a slightly different approach than, say, a large power reactor, because a large power reactor, 
you have a sort of a reactor vendor like Westinghouse that designs the reactor and then you do contract out a lot of the construction to say a company like Bechtel or something. Right. Um, we're taking a slightly different approach. We will have a number of contract, and I mean, this is a couple of years off, so this is my conceptual thinking of this. I'll fine tune this as we go along. But a lot of the, the parts will be contracted out for say pouring concrete for what's called a hot cell, the shielded facility in which you do radioactive material work in or pouring the concrete for the, the reactor itself, the shielding. But we're going to have a more hands-on approach whereas some companies will use the contractors what's called uh, nuclear quality assurance dash one program the nqa1 program it's like a very stringent very rigorous quality control that is way is like it's crazy it's it's a lot of work it's very expensive to comply with it's like i i don't want to compare it to underwriters laboratory it's like the ul guys if they went insane <laughs> but i like ul but um it's just like a it's a it's almost like a discriminate thing for nuclear. But instead of using those very expensive programs for our uh, quality assurance, we intend to take a more hands-on approach in what's called commercial-grade dedication. We'll have our own rigorous in-house program that, that we perform a number of tests on these things, and then we say that it's, it's like commercial technology versus, uh, quote, nuclear technology. And so it's, it'll save us a ton of money and allow us to construct things at a much lower end cost and quicker in a quicker time frame because it will be much less stringent. It'll still be, we still obviously, because we have a profit motive, want a facility that doesn't break because of shoddy construction. But the a lot of the, the commercial quality assurance um, things that you can do to make sure that your stuff's going to work correctly and is up to snuff um, is more than adequate for a lot of these quote nuclear things. And what's really nice too is that because our reactor um, is quote walk away safe, uh, passively safe, a lot of the components that interact with the reactor core like say our primary coolant system, the pumps that shunt all the water through and cool the core they don't have to be this like really super high safety classification because if they fail and I lose my coolant, then the reactor shuts down and then just passively cools itself off. And so we are doing a number of things to basically minimize the cost of construction because, uh, I mean, as a startup, as a small company, we need to be very careful about how much we spend and how quickly or slow things move because we have to get a product to market sooner rather than later. Awesome. That's really, really interesting. Is there anything else that you think would be useful for our listeners to know? Anything else your company's working on? Anything you'd like to mention? Sure. Yeah. Right now we are just dedicated towards what's called radioisotope production or these radioactive materials. Um, right now we are focusing on, I'd say the bigger market, which is medical use but there is a very wide variety of industrial uses as well and actual like security uh, government uses where the proper role of government being security there are some unique uses there and so those are potentially growth markets and there's a lot of growth markets within the medical aspect itself because there are certain materials that are just really hard to make 
and most of these reactors that make some of these radioisotopes that fulfill the larger market share, they're making them, but there are there are 40 plus isotopes that you can make in a reactor. And only a small handful of them are being made by these uh, shrinking number of government research reactors. And so, like as I mentioned before, some of these that uh, they can barely get through clinical trials because they can't access the material, those are obviously growth markets too because there's a, a, a very useful use and but there's just nobody making them. Is that 40 isotopes in general or 40 useful ones? 40 useful ones. Okay. Yeah, for a variety wow. of medical and industrial uses. And so we I mean I've identified a number of growth markets that if that just is if you can actually buy them, well people will buy them. And and there's there will be some, you know, growing pains in reintroducing this technology almost because I mean most people don't actually know much about nuclear medicine as such. And so it's just if there's a company that does some sort of industrial activity that you could use this radioactive material for, not only do you have to kind of get over that stigma of radiation bad, but mm -hmm. show that, hey, this is actually a way better technology for this purpose. And uh, it's not impossible. And you'd be actually be surprised at how open a lot of people are about these technologies. But there's definitely a, a huge potential for growth for a lot of these sort of forgotten materials that are not the the three big isotopes for medical use. So, um, so is there anywhere that um, our listeners can follow along, find out more about your company, watch as it grows, um, website, social media, anything? Well, our website is atomicalchemy.us, and you can certainly go to it, but there is pretty much nothing on it because we are kind of flying under the radar. Um, because we are taking a different approach to a lot of this construction, we and because of just kind of, how do I say this? Coming from the National Laboratory setting, there are a lot of people who are experts, and I would legitimately call them experts in nuclear science, nuclear material, nuclear technology. But because they have been in academia all their life, they don't really understand either business or markets or entrepreneurship, or they just can't see that this can be done by a small private entity. And so there are a lot of naysayers in my own field that I don't want to even let them know what I'm doing because the last thing I need is I'm trying to convince an investor that I, if I have this money, I can build this thing and then have some quote expert come in and say, that's not possible when it clearly is. We're, we're doing it. We are doing it. It's just that once we, until we hit a couple of regulatory milestones where it's beyond a reasonable doubt to these other people that it's happening, we're keeping it pretty mum. So we're, at, we're not stealthing it, but we are not making a splash yet. But I think next spring, once that, when that construction application is in, once that, once that milestone is reached, for all, even a lot of people who are, I would call naysayers, they're like, oh, well, they've made it that far. They're that serious and they have all this design stuff done. So maybe I won't be so, uh, I won't poo-poo their idea so hard in public. So um, I've actually lost out on a bit of investment because people who think they know a lot about what I'm doing, but don't I don't think they know as much as they think they know, have actually dissuaded their friends who are investors that they're doing diligence on behalf of actually 
I lost out money on that just because well, this is how the NRC works. You clearly can't do this at all. And I'm like, well, no, there's actually a clear-cut process. We're going through it. We're at this stage, and things are happening, and, you know. Uh, but they're like, oh, it's impossible. And then they tell the, their investor friends, and the investor friends are like, oh, we declined. So oh, we're, wow. we're, we're kind of keeping it under wraps until we hit some milestones. But So feel free to go to the website. There's a picture with our name. That's about it. Okay, wow. Um, so thank you. My guest today has been Thomas Iden, founder and CEO of Atomic Alchemy. Thanks for taking the time, Thomas. Well, thanks for having me.